welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring Lee Rittenauer. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Hey, listeners of the High Action Podcast, here we are, episode 15 with Lee Rittenauer. How about that? Good to see you, Will and Perry. How are you guys doing today? Stoked for this episode, let me tell you. Yeah, this is an amazing episode. So many stories. Oh my God, what a history this guy has. Yeah, yeah, and you know, the, having Lee, it's such an honor. I mean, this is a this is for those of you guys who are learning about these players. I mean, we've all been discovering where people come from and what scenes they're involved in and their history as musicians. We've interviewed some younger players on this um, series, and and then a guy like. Of course, we started off with the great John Schofield, but you got to put right there somebody who's been as impactful within the guitar scene, within the contemporary music field in Los Angeles, the studio scene. I mean, the great Lee Rittenauer here. I mean, Perry, what was something that you've learned about Lee since we interviewed him? God, a lot. Um, you know, I always admired him as a player and his technique. I don't think I understood just how deep he was with the studio credits just how much stuff he was on you know because when he's talking to us about what it was like for him coming up and being in LA you know throughout the 80s you know in the late 70s and things like that really getting a lot of work um he was on so many sessions it's kind of hard for us to wrap our head around it you know john you had a quote in the interview where he was on like a talk show talking about you know just how many records he had done that year and how many he had done that week and it's the kind of thing where a guy would like him was doing five or six dates sometimes in a day you know and and so i think it's hard for us to wrap our head around that but you know, when you get that kind of experience under your belt, you can't practice that experience. You can only like earn it, you know, in that way. And I think that's partly what makes him such a heavy player. But he's a nice guy. And, you know, he's been through a lot in his life recently, losing his uh, house to the fire. And he's got a lot of good music to share with us still. And so it's, it's, it was incredible. Yeah, it was incredible to have him on. I agree, man, and what an honor, and to, for us to bring it full circle back to the USC connection where Lee, as our listeners are going to find out, has a deep connection to the whole reason there is even a studio jazz guitar department at USC where we all got our degrees, of course, um, Will got his honorary degree from there, but, um, but you know, Will, you had, speaking of, you had, you had some great questions for Lee, too, and I, I, one thing that really I, I'm glad you asked him, too, was just about the range of style, the range of playing you know and uh, that's i know that's something you've worked on in your own music too recently like expanding acoustic guitar styles electric guitar styles i mean do you feel like guys like lee have a big impact on you wanting to continue to find new sounds on the instrument yeah i mean even i i one thing i love about lee or just getting to chat with cats because he mentioned you know he's like so i just plugged into the strymon iridium and, and just recorded on that it sounded great he's still just finding new pieces of gear and i mean I've grown up listening to his 
his melodies, his solos. And I didn't even know he, he played on Strawberry Letter 23. It's like, of course he did. And I, of course I have that guitar part memorized in my head from listening to it in Jackie Brown, you know, in <laughs> it's so funny. So this is, this is a special episode, Lee. And what a great like storyteller too. And just a great guy. This is definitely a high point for us so far definitely and you know we're, we're really honored to deliver this episode at this point of the high action podcast because here we are episode 15 we've interviewed a lot of our contemporaries guys who are our age guys who are legends in their own right there's plenty of more coming down the pike we've done a lot of interviews but you know getting a guy like lee it's it it really means a lot to us and it's something that we're going to remember for a really long time it's great that we've been able to document it in this way and for those listeners out there who want to keep engaged with us and check out more of the interviews coming up, or if you have questions that you'd like us to be asking people like Lee Rittenauer, be sure to connect with us on Instagram and on Patreon, of course. But, you know, the thing about this is the guitar community is so huge now, and we see this every day on Instagram. I mean, it is such a global community, and that's something that we get a sense when we interview Lee, is somebody who, when his career started, he was in an extremely high-level, very small field of guys in L.A. and a bit in Nashville and New York that were doing some of these sessions. And as he touches on now, for all of us listeners who know this and all of us, it's now a global scene of players, and the level has never been higher and to get to hear him talk about that and how he respects that and how he's aware of that, it's it's really inspirational. And it makes me wonder what guys like us will be like in 40 years after doing more and more of this session work, which continues to be more at home also. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, Perry too, do you feel like what he talked about resonates in New York as well, that there were legions of guys in New York that were kind of like the heavy session guys of their time and set forth other guys like that today to do that kind of work? Yeah, I think so. In New York, probably from a studio standpoint, not quite the same as LA. Um, but certainly you feel that sort of global competition here, um, the amount of guitar players more so than ever. Right. You know, what he did mention, Lee, in the interview that I think stuck out with me, stuck out to me, and I think a lot of people will resonate with, is that now more than ever, you really have to just find your own identity as a player. You know, that a lot of people can develop good technique and can learn how to execute things on the instrument. And one of the ways he talked about finding your own identity was about composing, you know. So I kind of want to just reiterate that and have the listeners kind of be listening for that throughout the episode because Lee's dead on with that. He really is. You know, you got to compose to find your voice. Uh, at least I think it's one way of doing it. And yeah, it's a really inspiring interview. I'm so glad that we got him to agree to do this. Nice work, John. I know you were working on that for us. And yeah. Let's let's yeah. get into it. What do you say? Yeah, definitely. And before, just before we do, we should also remind the listeners that his new solo album came out on Friday called Dreamcatcher, and it's his first yes. solo guitar record he's ever done of all the albums he's done. And I yeah. checked it out this weekend, and it's really cool. It gets beautiful nylon string sounds, really cool L5 sounds. I definitely know that's an L5 on there because that's his sound. Um, and he produced and did this all at home by himself, and he talks a little bit about this in the interview. So be sure to check 
check out Dreamcatcher. It's available on all the streaming platforms. And again, to all our new listeners, we so appreciate you guys staying engaged with us. Don't forget Instagram and Patreon are the two places that you can connect to us. Ask us questions that we can be directing towards our guests like Lee. And without further ado, here we go with episode 15 of the High Action Podcast, the great Lee Rittenauer. produce the High Action Podcast and have you here with us again, Lee. I mean, it's it's an honor. And again, shout out to Larry Koontz for putting us in touch. Absolutely, my man. Yeah. We love Larry. Yeah, we go ways back in this town, you know, and yeah. his dad too, right? Yeah. 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 What a joy it's been for us to get to talk to all of you guys. I mean, Larry, you, a number of our other interviews we've had so far, you guys are all of our heroes. I mean, we grew up listening to you. You inspired us to go to, you know, USC and pursue the studio guitar department. And so it's just a Excellent. great chance to get to hang with you, man. And I had to start by asking, growing up in LA in the 60s, what an incredible time to be here with the blow up of blues and folk and rock music and jazz and getting to study at an early age with Joe Pass, Barney Kessel, and Howard Roberts. I'm just curious, at an early age, I knew that... It, Based on everything I've learned about you, Lee, you were way deep into guitar. And uh, studying with those guys, what, were you feeling a huge pull, at, uh, wanting to develop yourself as a really burning young straight-ahead jazz guitar player? Or were you also listening to a lot of the popular music of the day and seeing yourself maybe kind of go more in that direction too? Because I can imagine it was kind of a two worlds that you had your feet in at that time. Yeah, no, it was it was actually several worlds. It was, I, I so I I got interested in the guitar at eight years old and uh, and and uh, started playing and got pretty serious about it right away and was taking lessons locally in uh, in Southern California and, and in L.A. And then by the time I was twelve, I said to my dad, I said, I love this. I think I want to do this. And and he said, What do you mean? He said, Well, I want I want to be a guitar player. I want to do it professionally. So I had already gotten that in my head at 12 and uh so he and i had gone through all these i, I grew up in the south bay in an area called palisuri it's a very nice area but uh again it was it was it, it was just the local guitar teachers teaching surf guitar and folk guitar and and whatever right and uh, a couple of teachers I, I think i went through five or six guitar player uh, teachers in in a matter of, of months and uh and there was one guy that was this jazz guitar player and 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 he was kind of an alcoholic and so on a good day he was like this amazing teacher on a bad day it was like hello <laughs> and uh so so finally my dad started calling around and and uh he you know that was, that was those are the days of the phone book right so everybody was in the phone book so he just called joe pass and said would you give my kid a lesson so we we went up there and i was scared as hell and and uh, I, I'll never forget the lesson. It was in the valley and at Joe's back of his garage. And and he said, what do you want to learn? How to play? I was think I was I think I was 13. He said, what do you want to learn from me? He said, well, I want to learn how to play like you, Mr. Pass. And so then he said, OK, well, on a blues uh, 
changes, you know, think of these scales and think of this uh, flat five, flat nine. And are you familiar with this? And I'm saying, yeah, yeah. And he's talking about all these scales. And I, I finally interrupt him and I said, um, well, Mr. Pass, I, when I hear your records and I hear you live, I, I, I never hear you sound like you're playing scales. He said, oh, yeah, well, I don't think about scales while I'm playing jazz. He said, but he says, well, I tell you what, that's the way I explain it. But just watch me. If there's anything you like, stop me and I'll show it to you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Rewind. And that was, that was the lesson. And, you know, because Joe grew up with this incredible ear and he grew up with this sort of Italian and then copying, you know, saxophone players. And 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 he, he wasn't really schooled at that point when he was learning how to play jazz, you know, so, and he had this phenomenon. So we were friends for, for his whole life, you know, and uh, I was friends with his wife. And and then my dad called Barney Kessel and, and the lesson with Barney was much more serious. It was, uh, it was around that same time. And uh, so I played for Barney a little bit and, and I was scared as hell and Barney was really serious and, and kind of scary. And, and, uh, and so Barney said, well, you know, you got talent, kid, but uh, I don't really teach, but I'm going to turn you on to the best teacher in Los Angeles. And his name was Duke Miller. And so I went and studied with Duke Miller. At, and every Thursday, my dad would drive me from Palos Verdes to the Valley, and we'd go up La Cienega, and we'd pass all these rock clubs like Pandora's Box and all these clubs on Sunset. And I'd go to these lessons, and Duke was just this phenomenal teacher. Never took the guitar out of the stand that was sitting in his room. Wow. He just had me had me write my own chord book. He taught me how to, okay, he taught me, what is a C major triad? What, what is a triad? And he taught me about the root third and the fifth, right? And then the minor and then the, the, the sixth and the seventh and the ninth and the eleventh and thirteenth. And so he, that first lesson, not the first lesson I ever had with him, but when I started studying chords with him, he said, go home and write every C chord you can on the guitar and write it, you know, write it on the, on the paper, on the music paper and write it in the box. And so I did that and I came back and we checked all of them. And, and he, and he, I missed a couple and he corrected me. And then he said, what about this one and this one and, and this possibility. So then I spent an entire six months writing my own chord book. And so we went from major to minor in, in, you know, every key and, and then added the sevenths and the ninths and the elevenths and thirteenths and then flat fives, flat sharp nines and everything diminished augmented and at the end of the i think it took longer than six months at the end of this i had this incredible book that i had written and that's where i get all my voicings from uh which ended up being the basis of me being a studio musician and a jazz player and a band player because i i didn't learn my chords out of a book i i learned it from putting it together myself yeah and later as you guys know duke miller went to to form the as I went to USC and studied classical guitar with Chris Parkening, and that was the only thing happening at USC then was no studio guitar department, no jazz department. And then I got Duke involved, and he he started the studio guitar program there. Oh, yeah. This is the fantastic lineage that we have in Los Angeles. Through many of our interviewers, we've been talking about this. There's so many players that spent a little time in L.A. and were in that flow left or guys who grew up here and grew up in that scene. And it's just it's fascinating to hear you talk in the first person about these guys, because, of course, they're the guys that we look up to and had checked out 
Did you also, I mean, study with Howard Roberts around this time? And was GIT kind of getting its start around this era with, with Joe DiOrio and Pat Martino over there? Well, even before that, um, I go back even further. So I, you know, like you guys in, whether it's in LA or New York or some other city and every young player that's coming up, you hear about the other good young players. Right. And so there was this other young player that I, I lived in Palos Verdes down in the South Bay and this other good player named Mitch Holder, uh, who became a studio player and one of my closest friends lived in the Valley. And we ended up doing casuals and parties, you know? So at the time I was 13, 14, 15, 16, I, I was doing weddings and bar mitzvahs and playing at the Elks club and, and, uh, you know, all sorts of places. And one day Mitch Holder was on the gig too. So there was two guitars and it was at a, um, it was at a, uh, it was for a, some sort of Mormon party and there was no dancing at this party. And so we just pulled out our fake book and played jazz tunes. And so, so we became the best friends, you know, and, uh, and so he studied with Howard Roberts first and then Howard had formed the very first clinic that, uh, that became, uh, the, the root of GIT. So we went to a hotel and that, that there was 30 guitar players and M Mitch wasn't actually in the, uh, he was kind of assisting by that time he was assisting Howard put, put the thing on. And uh, Tim may had come from back East and come out for the clinic and another studio guitar player that was very successful. Tom Rotella was there. Um, Barry Finitry was there. Um, somebody later told me Robin Ford was there, but I, I don't remember Robin being there. And so, uh, so but all these guitar players were there and, and that was the, the root of, that was the beginning of, of Howard's teaching thing that eventually became GIT. And so uh, I didn't ever study personally with Howard, but I, I knew him very well. And then when I started to do sessions at a young age, you know, there was a lineage of Joe Pass and Barney Kessel and Howard Roberts, uh, that was handed on down to Dennis Budimir and Tommy mm -hmm. Tedesco and then people like Larry Carlton and I and Mitch and Tim May and Tom Rattel. We were all coming up and taking these slots. And and then there was all the guitar players that were coming from the East Coast, including the Motown and guys like Ray Parker Jr. moving out and David T. Walker and Wawa Watson. Right. And, um, and then there was all the rock guitar players, which is a whole other slew of those. Man, and then this is the 70s, and by this point, you've recorded on Steely Dan Asia. You've recorded with Captain and Tennille and Melissa Manchester, John Denver, Johnny Mathis, all of these major artists of the day. And I watched that clip of you that Dick Clark had interviewed you on American Bandstand, <laughs> where you said you had just done 26 sessions in five days, and you had done at that point something like 2,000 sessions in three years. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, looking back on that, I mean, that's just for guys like our age. I mean, that's just totally nuts. I mean, we can't even fathom that that culture and um, the idea that there were so many guys that were bumping into each other and interacting with each other. I mean, were you at that point considered a peer of Larry Carlton's or were you still looking up to him? I know he was kind of a, the main session guy in the early 70s into the 70s at that point. Right. Well, Larry was about four years older than me, so. And he the funny thing is, is that he lived in Torrance and I lived in Palos Verdes. That was 15 minutes away from each other. So we both grew up hearing about each other. One day we ended up at a classical guitar teacher's. Uh, I was studying with a guy named Howard Heitmeyer before I went to USC. Mm -hmm. And Larry took some lessons with Howard. And we were both waiting for our lessons. And that's the first time I think I met Larry. And we were 
both still teenagers. And, um, and, and, uh, he, he, he got established as a studio player, but he, he was more of a specialized studio player. He was playing on some big records, of course, Steely Dan, Joni Mitchell and all that stuff, but he wasn't doing the, uh, the movie dates and the TV dates. And so when I came in, I was also doing the the rock dates and the R and B dates because I was a strong rhythm player. Larry was never a strong rhythm player, so it was like I, I my sister used to play all these Motown records in the house, and I didn't like the songs at that time because they weren't sophisticated enough for my tastes. I was into Mahi Vishnu and you know Miles and 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 even. Grover Washington or Sanborn or whoever the, the, the funkier flavor of the day was. But uh, my sister was playing all these Motown records and Motown was huge and Stevie Wonder was coming. And then eventually Earth, Wind and Fire was coming. But before that, there were the Motown days and there was all these amazing rhythm guitar player parts going on on those days. So when Motown moved to LA, I started getting called for Motown dates with David T. Walker and Wawa Wassa and Ray Parker Jr. And, and so, and then Jay Graydon, would also be uh, sometimes the other guitar player. And we would do Barry White sessions where there'd be four guitar players and Barry White would would sing out everybody's part to them and you'd stick on that part and play. And those tracks were amazing. Unfortunately, you can't hear them now when you hear a Barry White session because the Barry White things had all the strings and reverb and Barry's big voice and, and they, all the guitar parts were buried. But the, someday I hope somebody releases just the rhythm section stuff from that because yeah. it was Dean Parks, Once in a While Carlton, um, but mostly me, Dean Parks, Jay Graydon, and, and then Ray Parker Jr. and Wawa Watson. And it was uh, phenomenal. Yeah, and like how cool, I mean, these guys also were stepping out of the seat of being a session player, Larry Carlton writing major TV show themes at the time, like the theme to Who's the Boss, and um, uh-huh. uh, and also Ray Parker Jr. producing guys like Earl Clue and other pop artists at the time. So it seems like they would go, f- You got all the, all the guys of your generation would go from accompanying people and playing these parts, like you said, they would come in and sing, these parts to you actually having a role of producing some of these parts and was that happening for you around this time or did that happen a little bit later on well you know 1976 i was also starting to do my albums so at the same time i was in right in the middle of really the most successful time of being a studio player i was starting to do my own albums and uh, so uh I would get hired by Quincy Jones to, for instance, give me the night was a perfect example. Uh, I'd already worked with Quincy a bunch, but, and on the brothers Johnson, strawberry letter 23. And, uh, there, there, I actually, I'm going to back up to that story. Cause that's a real good yes. player story. Can we hear that? So, <laughs> so there, there's an old tune for the fans listening out there it has nothing to do with jazz, but, uh, has everything to do with playing the guitar and, and, so Shuggy Otis was uh, a 16-year-old blues guitar player, son of uh, Johnny Otis, a blues singer, guitarist. And so Shuggy had written this cool tune called Strawberry Letter 23. And Quincy was amazing at finding these tunes. And I'd, I'd hang, up at, hang out at his house sometimes, and he would show me on the cassette, you know, they said, check out this tune. This, this guy sent it to me, and it would be a tune that the brothers Johnson wrote the bass player and guitar player, George Johnson. And, and it was like not together at all. It was like almost terrible, but 
Quincy had a way of hearing that there was some diamond in the rough there. And then he would polish it, of course, and, and put it together and, and just do this amazing production. So on Strawberry Letter 23, Shuggy's demo was pretty together. And uh, the parts that you hear that those that I later played that are uh, kind of a wire, we used to call it wire choir. Uh, that was a Jay Graydon expression. Yeah, and all those triplets. So Quin- uh, Quincy thought, oh, that'd be perfect for, for you know, for Lewis Johnson and, and George Johnson to play this song and sing it. So he's producing the track, and finally it comes to George playing the, that part that you just sang, the, the fast triplets. Love it. And uh, George, George just couldn't do it. He was a great rhythm player, but he couldn't play any lead save his ass. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Quincy worked on this thing for three days with George. And, you know, Quincy liked everything very exact. So, so it didn't work with Shuggy. And then, um, then he, uh, he, so he, so so no then it didn't work with George Johnson. So then he called Shuggy to do it, and and Shuggy uh, ended up trying to do it. And and Shuggy of course could play because it, it was his tune, it was his part, but he couldn't play it with the same exactness that that Quincy wanted. He, you know, Quincy wanted he wanted it polished, he wanted it exact, he wanted it in perfect time. And George and Shuggy neither of them could get close to that. And so he worked. I don't know how many days, you know on that with with those guys so finally he, he, he bruce sweetie quincy's engineer who i was close to one day quincy just walked out of the room he says i'm sick and tired of this part he said call rittenauer he'll get it done and so <laughs> so then they they called me and i come in the next day to AM and and uh quincy said lee here's the part and we had somebody transcribe it here's the three parts put it down with bruce i'm going to lunch have it done when i get back <laughs> And and, I, and, I, and Quincy left, and I said to Bruce, I said, God, Q was in a terrible mood. What's going on? And he told me the story, and uh, I said, well, shit, we better get this done. And, and, I, and of course, I got it done, and, and Quincy wow. was happy, and, and the song was a huge hit for those guys. You know, Oh, that's incredible, man. <laughs> that's amazing. That's incredible. And, you know, um, rest in peace, Bruce Swedine, who just passed this week, of course, an icon yeah. in the field, and uh, a yeah. really sweet guy and a fun guy to talk to about recording guitar. Um, for oh sure. Goodness. I had a chance to work with him twice and he was very, very, very sweet to me. You could tell he knew I was a younger musician, so he wanted to kind of like give some input about get dialing in the sound the right way. Um, yeah. But yeah, and man, I mean, this is this that's that what a prolific story. Mm-hmm. Were you, I know that you mentioned that was over at AM, which is now Hanson. Did you have any right. favorite studios at this time that you really enjoyed showing up to that inspired you to to really get in the zone and and of course, around this time, you probably met Don Murray too, who I know has recorded all of your albums since that time. Correct? Yeah, Don. Don has been with me forty-five years, and he 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 came in towards the end of the first album, but started working with me on Captain Fingers in seventy-eight. And uh, I met him as a second engineer. He had moved from Philly, and uh, so and he has done just about. I think he has done every one of my projects and, and he would all the early foreplay projects. And I mean, he's just done thousands and thousands of albums. So during this COVID-19 thing where we couldn't do anything and I get, we'll get to that conversation in a while, but when I finally did the nice solo guitar record and, and I had lost my studio in Malibu to the fire and all that, that whole story. And, and so Don was now also, stuck in his house and he has his home studio set up there so i for the first time i did a, this album Dreamcatcher without don in my room and 
So I had to use all my experience of knowing how to record my guitar, of course, <laughs> which I had plenty. And, and I kept sending him stuff and whether it was jazz guitar or acoustic guitar or whatever sound I was doing. Right. And I kept sending him tracks and I said, Don, is this okay? Is this sound okay? And I'm, I'm recording everything on Logic Audio. And, and I had by this time replaced my uh, Apogee Symphony IO. And so, I, you know, I knew how to get around on this stuff. And, and, but I was in this room that was not my familiar studio. So the playing field was really leveled on this album. And Don kept sending the stuff back. He says, man, it sounds great. And, and uh, he, he tweaked a couple things with the compressors and stuff, but the, you know, and we put this, the thing together finally. And then finally, when I went to mastering on the, the new record, we worked with a fellow at the Sony studios that we had worked with Eric Boulanger for the longest time. And they let me on the lot during the pandemic and somebody was a fan there and they let me on the lot. And I was the only one on the entire Sony film lot where our mastering engineer had a small room that was doing the mastering. And uh, so that was quite an experience. But uh, Don and I go way back, and we used to spend hours and hours and days and days getting sounds on my records. Right, right. And that's so cool because, like, in New West Guitar Group, we've had the same engineer for the last eight records. We've And every time we go into the studio with Paul Tavener, we're picking up oh, where yeah. we left off with our acoustic guitar sound. Um, we're always trying to dial things in. And so it's it's so amazing to hear you talk like that and to, to share that experience. I have to just play one minute real quick um, of a clip of your of the album Writ, which uh, is so definitive of this early period before you really, well, when you were stepping out as a solo artist and, and right. you became famous, you were essentially, I mean, I don't know if the use one, one hit wonder is a correct term, but with Is It You, of course, was a huge hit in 1981. Um, so just to, for the listeners to check out, here's a, just a short clip of Good Question right here. That's some 80s sound, huh? <laughs> Man, <clears throat> Lee, it, it's such an honor to get to see you again. Um, I got to meet you briefly at the uh, Herbie Hancock semifinals back in December. That's in right. In the old world. I, um, I remember that. Yeah. Okay. No Man, I mean, first, I'd just like to give you a little praise of, you know, what your music has meant to me over the years, because especially during high school, especially the live at the record plant I had the DVD. <clears throat> I wish there was a CD of that. I was I would like rip the audio off the DVD and listen to it on uh, the iPod. Um, 
I'd love to ask you about that era a little bit, like 1985. And I mean, that band and, and even the way you guys recorded that session, which was very live, you know, yeah. um, could, could you enlighten us a little bit? Well, there was a, a great, uh, company in Japan called video arts. And, uh, I had met uh, this fellow, still a very good friend of mine, uh, named Hisao Ebene. And, and he was, he was producing all these great, uh, you know, he started off with VHS tape, and but it was all music-related stuff, and it was mostly in the studio, not live at, at a shows too much. But we did some of that as well. But uh, we we both had this idea that we wanted a great sound with a great video, so we started to do a few of these projects in the studio. So this, this was live at the Record Plant, a great studio on West Third, and kind of almost in the near La Cienega there, and. and uh, it's changed hands a couple of times and I, I'm not sure what it is now, if anything, but, um, anyway, so we, we, and it was a great period, uh, the young drummer, Carlos Vega, yeah. which he, which later he, unfortunately he committed suicide. And, uh, uh, but you know, it was just a great player, Dave Grusin, and my buddy yeah. who's still going stronger than ever. And, 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 uh, Yvonne Lenz, uh, the, the great songwriter, he was, you know, we, we had just done, uh, the Harlequin album, I think. And so, and Larry Williams was playing keys and, you know, there, there was so many great players during that period. You know, this, this track you just played, good question. I haven't heard this in years either. And <laughs> not a track that got played on the Rit album that much, but, uh, David Foster was, I think the arranger and playing keyboards. And, and I, I was trying to think who was on drums, but I, I think it was Jeff Beccaro and um and jeff later passed as well from toto and all the toto guys were close to me and and foster you know went on to become david foster and <laughs> and uh and david had an incredible you know songwriting career but he was also a great keyboard in the early days and so when he became uh when david became so pop uh, some of us were a little disappointed because he he's really a great pianist and a great arranger so he was there harvey mason was co-producing the album with me ian underwood was doing all the synth parts that you hear on that track i believe and some and some of the others and he was a an alumni of frank zappa so he was this incredible keyboard player and and he was ian underwood was also on captain fingers <laughs> and he was so brilliant uh that and from doing all those zappa dates and stuff that uh that he had memorized the music but he hadn't memorized it before the session he memorized it at the session <laughs> and all of us had all this music spread out on cabin which is a ton of notes you know that was like my chikoria mahi vishnu inspired period right and right. and uh, ian underwood had just memorized this stuff so he was amazing and so a bunch of great players during that period you know and wow. uh so, uh, you know, I didn't answer your question, but anyway, <laughs> no, I, I love, I'm, I'm curious just about, again, getting back to that record plant session at that time in 85, like pairing video with a live in studio audience might not have been as common as, as it is now, or maybe it was a couple years ago with the way things are right now. But man, I mean, the sound and the, and the the chemistry you guys had, you know, you guys were like having a blast. Did you guys rehearse a lot before that session, or because it? I think it was mostly memorized, right? Uh, a lot of it on the part of of me, or or maybe Dave Grusin, or a couple of the guys that had been playing the stuff a lot. Uh, 
couple of the others. Larry Williams was playing keys on that, I believe, and mm-hmm. Ernie Watts was also on it. Most of us had been playing a lot together. Abraham was on bass, I think, yeah. Laborio. Yep. yep. And yeah, Abraham was pretty much knew everything by memory. And so, yeah, a lot of it was maybe not all of it, maybe not all of the Yvonne Lynn stuff, but uh, uh, it was everybody was in their prime. And and uh, we were always frustrated sometimes doing these videos on a big stage and and not hearing exactly the way you want to hear. And in the studio, we could really hear well and the sound was the way we want you know like we're all yeah. players right you want yeah. to hear you get inspired if you hear it good and then if you hear everybody else being inspired and hearing their sound good so it was really a great way to uh and then we had just a small audience peppered around you know which was enough to give it a kind of a a little bit of a live energy wow i mean i have i wrote out like damn near note for note at least two of the songs from that which was that live version of Rio Funk and yeah. um, Power Wave, which is wow, actually a, a bizarrely tricky tune. Like the arrangement yeah. is really, really cool. I might have I think those that's, somewhere. Uh, I think that's Don Grusin. I think that's Dave's brother's tune, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Don wrote some tricky stuff in his day, definitely. And uh, that's, it still so... does, still does. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, that that's a special project that still comes up around the world. People uh, bring it up that it, you know, it. so it's a, it's amazing. And of course, in today's world where everything is on YouTube and mm-hmm. every, everything is some kind of interaction with a video, like even like we're doing a Zoom, you know, I mean, will you guys will talk about the day remember when you guys could we, we couldn't play together at, you know, on <laughs> yeah. a zoom call and, right. and now and then years from now which of course they've already invented but they, they won't let us have it yet yeah. uh yeah. you know where it'd be you guys will be perfectly in sync doing your records you know and uh, right. and right. doing your live performances and and everyone will be in their own studio you know so it, it does keep moving you know the technology and sometimes i um I, I think uh, a lot of the guitar players and musicians that are coming up around the world, uh, we get to hear all these amazing players, but they don't get out and play with enough other musicians live, you know. So that's something that's you, you still can't be replaced. Absolutely. Um, I do have one more question for you regarding your insight and experience both as a studio player and as fitting a role and fitting into a greater project. It's more like two questions. First question is what is some advice and some things you've learned over the years for really fitting in and, and serving the part needed. Um, and the second one is what are your top three guitars <laughs> to have for that? <laughs> <laughs> My top three guitars or guitarists? Uh, guitars. Oh, oh guitars. Well, um, as far as the the top guitars, you know, um, that only exists now with the uh, the ones that uh, ended up on this latest record and a couple others that were sent to me. But you know, the going back to the guitar history a little bit, my my Gibson three thirty five that I got when I was seventeen, the dot. Um, red one i got that out of the fire and so that's here that didn't end up on the new record because it, it didn't feel to me like the solo guitar type instrument but uh, and years years ago i had kind of replaced it when i was doing the six string theory record with uh, mike mcguire who was heading up gibson at that point um it uh, made me a, an incredible les paul and uh, so that one i also got out of the fire 
so I ended up kind of switching over to the Les Paul because the Les Paul was a little more stable with its tuning. And, uh, but the, the 335 still has this great fondness for me. Mm-hmm. Probably the most important guitar that I got and ended up recording with in the early days on my own records was my Gibson L5, the 49. And uh, so my dad took me to hear West Montgomery at the Lighthouse uh, in Hermosa Beach when I was 13. Wow. And I was just in love with Wes, and and uh, and I asked my dad, please, please, can we get an L5? And uh, it, it'll be my last guitar ever. You know that story, right? <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah, right. Famous last words. Right. 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 Yeah, and yeah. so we hunted down a guitar player who was playing a local gig in the area, and he was moving to Vegas and selling his, his L5, and it was the 49. And, it, and the funny thing is, we never figured out, and Mike McGuire at Gibson never figured it out for me either. But this L5, you know how the L5s, especially in those days, had kind of these bulky baseball necks, mm-hmm. and this one was this one was slimmed down. And I had I was a little guy, right? And and the guitar is huge, but the the neck was always tapered and very slim. And uh, I got lucky with that, and and uh, so that became one of my favorite guitars. And uh, I I took that out of the fire. And but I had you know about a hundred guitars that right. that I lost in the Malibu fire, and 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 seven made it out with me. And uh, and so it it ends up you know this year is sixty years that I've been playing the guitar. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, that's, it's like for you guys, you go, what the fuck? <laughs> 60, how's that possible? You know, oh, but it, you know, but the, the history of the guitar, the, the first solid body I had was, was called a Burns of London out of England. And it had uh, uh, the three pickups on it and Ampeg distributed it back those. And those days. I also got that when I was 12 or 13 and the ventures had one of those. And so that was the influence then you know so so it it was like you know each guitar was a different influence but during my studio career definitely the 335 was the the main goat and that was the same for carlton the same for uh jay graden and a little bit i think the same for dean park so we were all playing 335s and they were very versatile guitars we all 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 of us always complained about uh, the fact that they were a little hard to keep in tune perfectly. Yeah. And uh, later, I think they, they kind of remedied that and Gibson got it better. And then uh, later I had my model with Gibson, the, uh, the RIT model, uh, which is a, a smaller, slightly smaller L5. Um, and that uh, ended up on a lot of projects and ended up on the road with me. But uh, this year, uh, Roger Sadowski, uh, you know, I had been working with him for years and he's a great craftsman, as you guys know. And, in the New York area, and, and uh, he, uh, I always used his classical uh, electric guitars along with the Yamahas, mm. and uh, he uh, uh, he made me the uh, SS15, I think it is, which is his jazz guitar, and uh, so you know it. There, there's so many good guitar makers out there today, and, and Roger's special because he's still uh, kind of a one one guy with a, a small, a fairly small shop doing it, you know, on the other hand, Yamaha, uh, which I've been involved with since the first time I went to Japan in the seventies, uh, they're, you know, this, the biggest music company in the world, I think. And they, they have this, you know, they have this huge place out here in LA and, and, uh, and of course in Japan and, and they, they build more of a mass guitar, but this NCX five, I think is a new one that I used on the first tune on the, the new album Dreamcatcher, and on several tunes, it has an incredible DI and the guitar doesn't have a, an incredible 
acoustic guitar sound, but it has a nice acoustic guitar sound. And when you mic it in combination with the DI that they have, you know, that technology has moved along so well that it, the sound is just amazing. Wow. Today's podcast is brought to you by Marchione Guitars, handcrafted instruments made by luthier extraordinaire Stephen Marchione. I have two of his guitars. I have the 59 Semi Hollow, and I have the OM Acoustic. They play amazing. They sound like nothing else. Completely resonant across the whole body. Uh, wide frets, just so many overtones, so much beautiful sound coming out of these instruments. All made personally by Stephen by hand. Check them out at MarchioneGuitars.com. Wow. Uh, hey, Lee, it's uh, Perry over here. I just wanted to jump yeah, in. Yeah, Perry, we haven't talked. <laughs> and, and say hi. Wow, it's such a pleasure to hear you speak about your experiences and your career and uh, about Los Angeles. God, 60 years playing the guitar. Man, yeah, I, crazy. I, I tell this story a lot that uh, the guy that John and I studied with, the great Joe DiOrio, he told Oh, yes, us, absolutely. He told us, you know, the first 20 years are a warm up. And, you know, we're, we're just kind of getting past those 20 years. And I can't imagine what it's going to feel like after 60 years on the instrument. It's going to probably feel yeah. pretty, pretty incredible. Well, you know, it, it was like when I, uh, you know, I had done 40, about 45 of my own albums. And uh, some of them were with Foreplay, four of them, and yeah. a couple of collaborations, one with Larry Carlton. And, uh, and with Dave Grusin, of course. And we've done everything from classical to jazz, Brazilian to pop 80s you mm -hmm. fusion you name it i've been there yeah and and um so i've done all these albums but i had never done a solo guitar record so finally when i did Dreamcatcher, that's coming out december 4 yeah um it was it was like and it was on top of you know losing the house and losing the studio and and going through all this stuff and and then going into 2020 and 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 not to make a dramatic story, but also a week after the fire in 18, I had to go into the hospital unrelated to the fire for the first time and have an aortic valve replacement. So I, oh I had God. never, never been in a hospital in my life. Nothing, you know, I'd always yeah. been generally healthy. And so I had this going on on top of the fire and, and everything else. And, and so the writing and, and composing and, and recording the, the new record was really, uh, I felt like it was the first record. Wow. So that feeling when I was doing a record and it felt like a first record, first of all, Don Murray couldn't come over. I was, yeah. didn't have my studio anymore. So we had yeah. with one tech, I had to put together this new room, bought a few mics and uh, Mesa Boogie helped me out and Fender helped me out and Sadowski helped me out and Yamaha helped me out. So I had a lot of help and a lot of people. And then I got my Genelec speakers and I had nice. taken out the brain of my Apple computer that day for from the studio so that i had and um so i put together and i had to record and 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 it wasn't a jazz album you know i don't know you guys i don't think i've heard the record yet but um it's a compositional record it's all it's except one old tune it's all new songs and so and you know some of them are kind of almost improvised uh you know like we do on stage sometimes and and, the, and that one's called 2020 it's a three-part suite and it's nine minutes and then there's other ones like the Dreamcatcher song that are i use two classical guitars for the yamaha and cx5 and those are more composed through and orchestrated and uh, one's called couldn't help yourself and and couldn't help myself 
and and that's got 20 guitars on it and and and, and i completely wow. orchestrated kind of almost like a prog rock uh song that i did on logic and and there's a lot of strumming and rhythm and distortion and 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 then there's a, and i'll just tell you about one tune called abbott kinney so mm -hmm. during the first pandemic so I, I by this time i had recorded at least half the album i did a bunch of jazz guitar i'd done mm -hmm. some baritone guitar mm -hmm. taylor got me a baritone guitar and i had written a couple of compositions and um and so by this time i had recorded uh just over half the album and i went for so during the shutdown, everything was closed, right? And it's the first, like the end of March, and it, like everyone's in shock. And mm -hmm. every, you know, you've seen these pictures of New York and yeah. and Paris and Tokyo and everywhere in the world is shut down. So I'm a bike rider. So I take my bike and I go to this very famous street over on Abbott in Venice here in a few minutes from the house uh, in Venice uh, called Abbott Kinney. And it's a very popular street, the most popular in Santa Monica, Venice, Southern California here, shops and coffee shops and people and everything. It was completely devoid of people. It was completely empty, no cars, no people. No, and I sat on the side of the street for a second and just getting totally depressed thinking about the whole world like we all were. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I hear this rock guitar, like some I'm assuming it was a kid, but I don't know. It was upstairs in an apartment that I didn't know existed and over a storefront. And somebody was just jamming, like turned up to 10, rocking out on their guitar. And this guitar sound was bouncing up and down Abbott Kinney. And, I, and it brought a huge smile to my face. And so that day I, I went home. I couldn't get it out of my head. Got out the Les Paul and plugged into this um, Iridium uh, Strymon, uh, Iridium, uh, very sophisticated oh, yeah. uh, box that is very popular now. And then plug that into uh, the Apogees and into Logic and yep. and dialed up a sound and went for it. So that became one of the songs inspired by some guitar player jamming on Abbott Kinney during the pandemic. You know, oh, man, I love that. It's so great to hear this. I mean, you know, you went through some challenges in your life with where the house and your health and then you came back with this album and that's really wonderful i can't wait to check it out i'm sure it's very inspired and the fact that it's solo guitar is also really uh, interesting and it kind of leads me to a question that i wanted to ask you about uh, when you were studying at usc because i know you were technically in the classical guitar department because there wasn't a studio jazz department or even That's just right. a jazz department. Nothing, um, yeah. It yeah, was classical. I mean, you were really a trailblazer for cats like us and many others that came along after you. But do you feel like that foundation of studying classical guitar, uh, ultimately it helped you in many ways, but do you think it's ultimately helped you um, as a solo guitar player? Well, yeah, the, the, the classical background is, is tremendous. And I recommend anybody uh, that's serious about the guitar whatever style you love whether it's rock or blues or jazz study some classical guitar and and there's, there's good teachers out there in most of the cities around the world you know and and uh, there's and again it's like classical piano it's it's the roots and it may not be where you finally want to live you know but that sound mm -hmm. that i get on the classical guitar is because i studied classical guitar and duke miller back in those days when i was 13 14 15 he said you should go study some classical guitar. And that Howard Heitmeyer was the guy he recommended. Mm -hmm. And then Howard Roberts has a connection to the Chris Parkening thing. So oh, there oh. was a, there was a fellow named Jack, Jack Marshall, Marshall who yeah. went on to also teach at USC later, but Jack Marshall 
was um, related to Howard Roberts in the sense that Jack was a guitar player and an orchestrator and in the studios of L.A. And he he produced Howard Roberts records and mm-hmm. and so over at Capitol. And he was a big part of, of Howard's thing. And so then he was also doing all these TV shows. And um, so um, one of his sons, uh, he had two sons, I believe, and, and uh, Jim Marshall was a guitar player, but also uh, Frank Marshall uh, married Kathleen Kennedy. They became, uh, and they went to USC and they became Spielberg's producers. And so they're very much... You know, uh, you know they, they they have a huge company in LA, but always very you know centered around. They love music and they love guitar teachers. So then, Jack Marshall was Christopher Parkening's uncle. Oh, so that's the connection. And there it is. That's the connection. So then, through Jack, I got to study with Chris when I was eighteen before I went to USC. Oh, wow. So cr- Chris was already this phenomenal classical guitarist had and Segovia had anointed him as the next guy. Yeah. And so Chris Chris was had a house on Laurel Canyon in the in the valley and I would go there and I would study classical guitar with him. Mm-hmm. And there's this memory I have of one day we're, we're, he's giving me the lesson. I think I'm 17 or something and he's like 20 and and so then all of a sudden this horn is honking outside his living room on, on Laurel Canyon there. And, and this pink Cadillac comes up the convertible and it's got these four or five guys in it. And, and they're all honking at, Hey, Chris, come on out and hang, you know? And, and I'm looking out the window. I said, who are those guys? He's, Oh, don't pay attention. Those are the Romeros. That's Pepe and on Hill. And those are the Romero. Those are those flamenco guitar players. <laughs> and so, the, so those were the young Romeros that wanted to take Chris out and hang. That's great. <laughs> oh man, what a what a crazy story! I love that. Oh my That's god, awesome. yeah. I I have a few more questions. Um, you had mentioned uh, being down at the lighthouse and seeing West Montgomery when you were a kid. And I was very fortunate in my time in L.A. that the lighthouse was uh, still happening. Uh, a gentleman you may have come across named Ozzy Kadena was uh, keeping the music going there. And that's right. He got, he got me on the bandstand with Louis Belson and uh, with Roy McCurdy and with Ron Stout. It was a really great experience for me at, at a young age. Do you have any other memories of seeing music at the lighthouse? I mean, you grew up down there, it sounds like. so. Yeah, yeah. Was- well, so when I got a car, I would go down to the... I, I figured out that the, the guys would have their sound checks around, you know, three in the afternoon or something. Okay. And so I'd go, to, I'd go down there and, and watch the sound checks. And, oh, uh, you know, that way I didn't, I didn't have to, and of course, in those days, it was a lot looser. You could get, this is a long cylinder club with the bar that was back against the wall. And right. then the bandstand wasn't that far. It was, it was like a cigar shape. And so I would, I'd kind of go in there by that time, um, Rudy, um, the owner uh, kind of knew me and let me kind of hang out and, and I would watch sound checks of Willie Bobo playing percussion and Freddie Hubbard and Cannibal wow. Adderley wow. and Matt Adderley, his brother, yeah. and uh, Her- uh, Herbie Mann on, on f- coming in with flute. And then, of course, yeah. Wes would... Uh, yeah, I never went to a sound check of Wes's, I don't think, because he didn't play there that often. He became kind of the, this bigger star after that. Yeah. Uh, but Kenny, Kenny Burrell, I went and heard Kenny. 
Uh, and and uh, I remember going to a sound check and checking out. So I went down there all the time. I was like this pest and just watching the sound checks, you know. And then yeah. and then there was this saxophone player who who kind of became this almost like this first smooth jazz type saxophone player named John Clemmer. And he used a, a tape um, reverb uh, delay on his saxophone back in the late 60s and 70s. And, and then he became this... Uh, this guy that never went out of his house finally. So, so nobody ever heard about John again, but, but he was, he was actually pretty talented and he would play there. And I ended up playing with him when I was about 17. And I think that's the first time I played at the lighthouse. Wow. Wow. I mean, what a great education it must've been uh, to have a an institution of the music right there for you like that. Um, yeah. Have- but you know, we, you guys had all these clubs, you know, in New York. And of course we had the, you know, we had the big potato where a lot of people uh, got yeah. famous from playing at me, myself included a jazz club called Dante's that was more yep. for the studio musicians and Les Paul uh, strolled in one day when I was playing there with John Paisano and, and, uh, and, and, uh, I was 19, I think. And years later at Capitol records, just before Les died. So now he's, he's like, I don't know, late nineties by this time. Yeah. And, you know, and he had this phenomenal memory, right. That, that people studied, you know, he, he was like brilliant. And I was talking to Les at Capitol records one day. And, and I said, Les, I got to tell you, you're not going to remember this, of course, but yeah, he said the, the first time I met you, and he said, "Oh no, I remember Lee. The first time I met you, I said you do," and he says, "Yeah, you were playing at Dante's, and and you were playing on Monday nights with Paisano, and and he says I walked in, and uh, you were supposed to be the hot kid, and uh, he says I remember that, and I said, "Shit!" So he did have this, he Damn. did have this phenomenal brilliant mind less yeah of yeah well i'm not surprised he was a brilliant person so that 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 adds up uh before i pass this off to john i have one more question that i've been kind of dying to ask you it's a little bit left of center and related to steely dan but i was hoping you could kind of put a rumor to rest for me or clarify on a rumor that i've heard for uh decades now i guess so okay Tell me if this is true or false, but what I've heard about Steely Dan is that they would basically hire different guitar players to come in and record over, record a solo over one of their tracks, and they wouldn't tell any of the cats, whether it was you or Carlton or Dean Parks or someone, they wouldn't tell you whose solo that they've picked, and you'd have to find out when the record <laughs> dropped and came out and you have to be thinking back is that me on that solo or is that carlton or is that is there any truth to that or is that just urban legend well it, it there's sort of a truth it's a, it's a little bit of a bigger truth it really wasn't just about the soloist it was about if you made the record at all okay. so we, we, so i didn't record that much with uh Stilly dad of course on asia uh, um but Carlton kind of was working with them earlier and yeah. then Jay got in with them and I think Dean Parks and, and then a couple of the New York guys yeah. and, and they would call me. And most of the time I had a feeling I wasn't first call or whatever, because I'd get the call. What are you doing? Like in an hour, <laughs> you know, it's like, and the, the only, the only other one that would make that kind of call would be Quincy. And I said, well, I'm, I'm busy Quincy. So, well, what are you doing at midnight? And I'd, sometimes I'd go work for Quincy at midnight and overdub wow. stuff. So Steely Dan, they, they needed you for two or three days lockout and they, they would call. So I remember that with, um, with Asia is that even on a simple rhythm guitar part, they would spend 
one day on a part, you know, it was just like, wow. on, you know, on eight bars. I mean, and you'd, you'd wow. get paid very well, you know, and there, but there was a lot of people doing that at that time. Pink Floyd was the same way when I worked with Gilmore and, and Pink Floyd on the wall and, and also Barry Gibb, uh, when we did Saturday Night Fever it, and, and, uh, they were the same way. And, and, and he, they would just spend days and weeks and months on, on one tune. You know, and Kenny Loggins was the same day when we did Celebrate Me Home with, and Robin wow. Ford and I were on that. You know, they there were certain guys that would just like, they they didn't mind spending the time. You know, now all those little pieces that they would spend time to to get it just right, those are little pieces that you can pull up on on any computer. You know, yeah, so right. yeah. It, it's yeah. like so it's really changed. But that feeling of making us re- so going back to your solo stuff. Uh, Jay Graydon tells a, a great story. I guess what's that famous solo that he ended up on Peg, mm-hmm. and yeah. and so so uh, I didn't get called to. I, I never got called to play any of the solos. They, they always thought of me as this great rhythm player, and and all the other guys like Carlton and some of the others that they, they were not as much parts and rhythm players. They were more of the solo guys. You know, mm. Dean was one that Parks was one that could play all the parts as well. So we were playing a lot of the parts, but. Uh, Jay ended up on one of the souls, but uh, when the record came out, he didn't know if he had made the cut because apparently seven other people had done the solo. Yeah, this and, is what I'm uh, talking about. I think there's yeah. some truth to this. <laughs> oh no, there's total truth to it, and and uh, uh, and so yeah, and they told Jay, um, and they, and I think they played Jay when he did that recording. They played him a couple of the other solos. But, you know, they wouldn't tell him who it was out, almost out of politeness to the other guys. And uh, and so they they kind of and everything was not based on who played the best guitar, but really who did orchestrated their part the best for the song. Of course, you know, it, yeah. even 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 if it was a solo, it was a pop solo. So yeah. it was all about orchestration. Mm-hmm. Same uh, uh, same way when uh, Bob Ezrin called me to play on the wall and and uh and i went in there and, and i and i and they said well we can't put your name on the record because it's still like a band thing i said well i get paid and they said oh yeah very well so later they when the cds came out and this is pre-cds they they put everybody's name that that guessed it on the record which was me and a couple of background singers and a percussion and so but gilmore and and bob ezra and they were so into the detail and they were working on um um that famous solo that the Gilmore did on uh, another brick in the wall. And yeah. so, and they played me the end of the solo and they said, we, we're not sure about the ending of the solo yet. And so they asked me to play a couple of solo lines and, and to like do some solo stuff. He said, and he said, we're not going to use it, Lee. We just want to like have somebody give us some other ideas. So a lot of those guys were like that. So I, I ended up jamming a bunch of stuff and then you know two years later when i finally heard the record when it finally comes out of course i'm not on that's gilmore 100 percent on that solo uh. but there's a couple of licks on there that i i think maybe yeah. I, I i got i were a little bit inspired from that time yeah and wow and so they were just so meticulous you know and and all those guys were you know it was it was amazing yeah a fascinating era, and uh, it's just a pleasure to hear you speak about it. Uh, it's really, yeah, it's really inspiring. Uh, back to John. 
Yeah, and and man, again, Lee, we so appreciate you joining us on the High Action Podcast. I mean, it means the world to us that you would take this time. We know how incredibly busy you are. Dreamcatcher comes out December 4th, which is around the time that this episode is going to be released to promote your record. We're very excited to check it out. Um, And just in, in closing here, you have persisted through every era of the music industry, from major record labels to independently releasing. Um, you've released, you're someone like us who's very passionate about releasing albums and really doing that art. Of course, today it's harder than ever, it seems, to get that out and promote it. Do you have any parting words of advice for the younger generation of guitarists out there, especially in a time right now when the industry is kind of in an ice age, on just persistence and pursue and really pursuing your craft and following and going forward, even at times where it feels like the industry is changing so much that it's really hard to adapt to the new landscape. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. And, uh, like this new record, I'm, I'm releasing it through the mascot label group in the Netherlands and, and it's worldwide with them. But then in Japan, it's with the Yamaha folks that I've worked with for years. And, and, uh, so I, I, once again, I have a worldwide release on my record, but, uh, but even the, again, once again, the style of releasing has changed, you know, everything else, of course, about streams and Spotify and, and Pandora and, and iTunes and Amazon. And, and, um, you know, they were still, they're still manufacturing CDs, but that's a very small part of the world. And, you know, I, my son is 27 years old and Wes, and he's a professional drummer and, and I, and, and he's into all you guys, you know, he's, he's your age group and, and, uh, he's always turning me on to every cool jazz guitar player out there and, uh, you know, all the young cats. And, and so it, it I, I keep abreast of what everybody's doing and, and it's definitely difficult. And, where I had to compete in Los Angeles with other guitar players from Los Angeles or New York, maybe a little bit Nashville and London, you know, now you guys are competing with every good musician in the world and every good musician in the world is trying to make, uh, you know, have a, a place of identity. And, um, uh, I think for all the students out there learning how to play and, and learning how to, uh, just, you know, become a a great player between what's online and what you can learn online, what you can learn from copying from YouTube and, and learning that way. And, and just the process of the, of the development of the guitar is, is pretty advanced now, but I think it's still hard to have your own individual voice. And I think it's more important than ever to have your own individual voice more than ever. And one of the ways that I found that it worked for me and I find that it works for other people is is the songs so if you compose or if you even have other tunes that but you interpret it in your own way um and that that tends to give you an identity you know and whether it's me or um or pat metheny or um or my vishnu going back to the fusion days or chick korea or herbie hancock you know it's 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 the tunes that along with the playing that stick out, you know? And so there's a lot of phenomenal players out there. And, you know, it's like I, we were at the White House uh, doing International Jazz Day <clears throat> right before Obama left, and we went into this other kind of era. <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so uh, so when we were doing the, the at the White House, uh, uh, 
it was you know all these amazing musicians there for international jazz day including a couple of you know great singers like jero and and uh and aretha franklin was there and and so uh and a lot of people have passed since then, but you know the guitar players were uh, Lana Luecki, of course, who worked with Herbie Hancock a lot, and it was it was mainly Herbie's thing, along with John Beasley being the musical director, and then uh, Pat Metheny was there, and John McLaughlin and me. So those were the guitar players, and we were sitting around. There's a picture of of us uh, out in the garden at the White House, and and we all had our guitars and noodling as we all do, and uh, we we were talking about how we somehow we got on the subject of all the young cats, meaning guys like you, that and and that and and all this young generation that and and younger than you guys too that it just you know and you can see it on YouTube every day you know sometimes there's like an eight year old that's like playing their ass off you know <laughs> it's like it's like what how is that possible, but we we noticed that there's you know, uh, there's always a language of the day, you know, whether in the 70s, whether they were copying Carlton I and, and guys like us out here in California, or again, like guys in the fusion era, like Demiola or McLaughlin and that whole period. And then the Matheny era of, of everybody sounding like Pat and then Rosenwinkel. And, and, you know, it, it, there's, so there's always kind of different flavors, but the guys who stick out, are the ones who who really have their own sound and style because everyone's got good technique now. It's like so, uh, and you know somebody like Julian Lage is is uh, almost like a throwback a little bit because he, he 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 doesn't necessarily. I mean, he's got great technique and everything, but he doesn't necessarily throw the technique out there, you know. So, and it, what you guys are doing, I know, is very melodic, and and you're in a lot of different areas, and and. And between New York and LA, you know, you, you guys got it figured out. Doesn't make it any easier to earn a living, and it doesn't necessarily make it any easier right now. It's like being a professional musician was hard enough, and now with 2020, it's like, damn, you know. Yeah. So, but it's it's like I think um, for all the young players out there that are trying to come up, you know, it's like uh, there, there's just the competition is is unbelievable but there's also just great flavors around the world now that are being added so you know i'm married to a brazilian and and brazilian music is a part of my life and and uh you know so i've incorporated some of the brazilian culture into my culture here and and uh i have this foundation called six string theory which i just wanted to mention before we leave that um we've developed talent for 10 years and had competitions running for guitar, six styles of guitar, jazz, rock, blues, acoustic, country, classical, rhythm, and just about any style. And we've had amazing winners from around the world in, in the guitar and, and uh, piano, bass, and drums now as well for the last few years. And uh, this year, we couldn't run the regular competition because of, obviously, the 2020. But uh, next year, it'll start up again the second half of 21. But right now, we took... Uh, we did a free contest that Yamaha and Mascot are sponsoring. And if you go up on the sixstringtheory.com, you'll see uh, the contest for Dreamcatcher, and it's a hashtag uh, Dreamcatcher contest. And we put up one of my songs called Starlight. And uh, cool. Starlight was a, a tune that I wrote for the new record, and, and it's fairly simple. And I did it on the baritone acoustic. And uh, But right now we put up just the, the lead sheet and the complete transcription. 
So if the guitar players don't read, they got to find somebody that does read and help them learn it. But I wanted to put it up there before they or anybody heard my recorded version of it so that we would hear how somebody else would do it. So the contest is like, take the song, do a video of it, you playing and submit it. And, uh, and, and you can hashtag it and run through, uh, uh, Instagram and it, the, the rules are very simple, but, uh, and, and the prizes are, you know, uh, Yamaha acoustic guitar and some, uh, a series of lessons that I did for Yamaha that are, are free uh, from me. And there's a bunch of cool stuff to, to win, but mostly I just wanted to hear, other guitar players around the world make it their own and do it cool so check that out oh that's great so for all the listeners check out the six string theory page and check out all, of course on all the platforms Dreamcatcher coming out december 4th and um again we just have to say another round of thanks to you lee you're an icon and to have you today means the world to us man we just really appreciate your hour so thank you for joining yeah. us for high action lee well, I know you guys are all, we didn't talk enough about you guys and all phenomenal players. And I, and I've heard, uh, heard you quietly. I've been listening to in, for years. So I, I, I know more about you all than, than you even realize. And, uh, you're doing some great work and I know, you know, it's, it's everybody can't do the show so much now, but you know, I think it, things are going to clear up in a number of months. So yep. it's a good time to, uh, to write and record and, and visualize and conceptualize, you know, what's next for as an individual guitar player and a musician and, and making a livelihood and out of it and, and also doing it as a group. Yeah, man. Yep. Well, you inspire new West and all of us individually. So we appreciate it. Lee, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks, all right, Lee. guys. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash Group. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.